Many environmentalists are opposed to the scheme, as the barrage will cause significant environmental damage. The issue here is a very tricky, rock-and-a-hard-place uh, environmental problem because the estuary is a, is a site of special ecological uh, merit and um, sticking up a big barrage that blocks the inflow and outflow of water, uh, or at least changes those flows, is likely to have effects on uh, marine life, aquatic life, fish, water, wading birds, etc. Um, and valuing those losses is a difficult and um, subject, not impossible, and economists are very clever about thinking about how to do it, but it is nonetheless difficult in a subjective exercise. So the challenge for us at the moment is to make sure that we don't destroy the environment in our quest to protect it. And it's still a very live issue here as to whether this type of investment is one that the UK should be proceeding with. In terms of the environmental cost, all of the projects that are proposed to generate a large amount of renewable energy from the sea are going to have a big impact on the environment, whatever project one looks at. If you look at the equivalent number of marine current turbines, if you look at offshore impoundments, whatever you look at, you're going to have a huge impact on the marine environment. And at least with the barrage, we have looked at the environmental impacts in huge detail in terms of environmental impact assessment studies and so forth. What we are trading off here is the value of manufactured goods, which require power generation, against what economists call the existence value of the environment, or its value for its own sake. There is a kind of substitution that's assumed, that if we have man-made capital, man-made goods, iPods, buildings, etc., these substitute one for one for the natural environment we've lost. So you can, you know, you might not have nice uh, a tiger's look at, but, you know, you've got a new city and lots of buildings in it. You may not have the countryside to enjoy, but you've got an iPod. They translate one for one. I don't think that's right. I think our material well-being depends in a very deep and critical way on our environment. Furthermore, one country cannot protect the natural environment alone. In tackling climate change, the really difficult bit is it's global. And what we do in any particular country only matters in as far as it reduces the emissions in parts per million in the atmosphere, wherever. I think the problem with United Nations forums is that they have to involve 192 countries, approximately 192 countries, and each one of those countries has a right to slow down or veto much of what goes on in those debates. That's probably the wrong way to get an agreement on something as important as this. The Copenhagen summit of 2009 was viewed by many as a bit of a failure. Um, and certainly there were some real disappointments. Uh, we left the summit without a clear vision for what emissions should be by 2050. We didn't, uh, as of December 2009, have uh, an agreement on what uh, rich and poor countries would do even by 2020, although as I speak, in January 2010, um, those targets are coming, coming in to the to UN. Uh, we didn't have a pathway from getting from 2020 to 2050. Uh, we didn't have a pathway in the short term for getting to a legally binding target. What really matters is what's going on in China, what's going on in India, and to a lesser extent, what's going in the United States. And the story behind that is coal, coal and coal. The share of coal 
in uh, global energy has gone from 25 to 28 percent and it's well on its way to 30 and the industrialization of china and india where uh, the emissions growth is fastest is coal based the the locus of uh, power in, in and the forum for those negotiations may well shift in the coming months and years to a smaller group of countries that reflect a large proportion of global emissions. The US and China are key players. Both of them are actually doing quite a lot in different ways, not necessarily on the pledging uh, of reductions, but in terms of investment in uh, research and development and clean energy in, in America, is, it's, you know, it's fairly impressive. and. China in particular playing to its strengths of manufacturing and exporting uh, very low-cost green equipment. And so recognizing the kind of comparative advantages of the two countries in contributing to solving the problem I think uh, is important and has that recognition has begun to be there. What should the US and Europe do and can it be done? The countries mainly responsible for the consumption of carbon, Europe and the US, 50% of world GDP should impose a price on their carbon consumption and that's a carbon tax plus a border tax. We should pay for the emissions that are made in China which are caused by our consumption and are made on our behalf. That's the first step. And Of course once you start putting border taxes on carbon emitted uh, in countries like China you start to begin to change the incentive structure of China and India and others. So I would go bottom up from a carbon tax point of view and border taxes rather than the hopeless idea that we're going to get some all singing and all dancing legally binding international treaty which is actually going to address climate change. It is possible for the UK to decarbonise. It's possible I think for every country in the world to, to fully decarbonise. The question is, as you say, at what cost? And, and are we willing politically and at the ballot box to, uh, and in the supermarket to, to pay those costs? If we are intelligent in our public policies, high carbon taxes focusing R&D on the things that really matter, then we can solve this problem. The issue is whether societies, governments are prepared to take the difficult challenges that are needed to get us there.